This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Grips. From comfort to durability to grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. So check out renthal.com. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, myself, Steve English and Gordon Richie are going to look back at the action from the Argentinian round, the World SBK, the penultimate round of what's been just a terrific season all the way through, Gordo. And this was a strange one, Gordo. I was in the paddock and for the first time in 23 years, you weren't. No, I wasn't. Um, with all the restrictions that were in place for UK citizens at the time, it was, as a freelance journalist, financial suicide for me to go. It was insane. Um, as it turned out, I could have went, probably, but by then all the paperwork we had to go through to be allowed to go there by the Argentinians uh, was all too late, so I couldn't actually go. Um, so, yeah, it was a weird one. It was so strange watching races on TV and checking out other sources of information rather than just being there and doing it yourself. It's, it's literally the first World Superbike race I haven't been in since 1999, since I started as a freelance journalist in 1999. So weird doesn't cover it. It was so weird. It was very, very strange. And the wee bit of time difference as well made it a bit weirder. No, it was, it was, a, it was a strange experience. Um, You know, and it did prove to me that nothing beats being there. You know, it, it's I managed to do all the work I had to do, but... Absolutely nothing beats being there. I found it quite interesting, Gordo, because obviously for you, you weren't there. Charlie Hiscoff from Eurosport wasn't there. And I was chatting to Charlie on, I think it was the Friday or the Saturday. And uh, he was saying the exact same thing as you. It, nothing beats being there just for the little bit of you know, the feel of the dirt on the ground and getting yourself into it. And I thought it was interesting, especially considering for almost all the last season, Charlie had to do it off-site. He got back on this year and suddenly you get to see that importance that you get from actually being at the event. And I thought it was really interesting that both of you felt the exact same. Yeah, and the funny, do you remember the funny thing about it is I think the first race Charlie went to in person was Estoril and he was absolutely like a schoolboy first day of school but really looking forward to it. He was like, it's so excited, it was unreal. Um, and hopefully I'm going to feel that way when I get to Indonesia because we've started that process now. Again, it's a bit tricky in some ways. Uh, mostly this year because it's a new race but yeah I'm fully intending going to Mandalika I'd quite prefer it not to have to do it with all the Covid still kicking around in the world and so on I mean it's still a thing it's not going away um, but I will be if I'm allowed going to Indonesia partly because I really did miss not being in Argentina as much and Indonesia is going to be expensive it's going to be but that's fine every season is when you've got long hauls we've actually had two seasons now with one long haul at the beginning then Argentina and nothing else in the middle so in terms of actual for the paddock the costs this year are going to be big because of the races were so difficult and so on and all the testing that's going on is more expensive but in terms of long haul budgets I think there's we're now spending money that people haven't had to spend in some regards um and, but no, having long hauls, it's a world championship. You should be having long hauls. You should do at least one in every continent, as far as I'm concerned. It was one of those situations, Gordo, at the weekend, where you definitely felt that the whole paddock managed to make it work, with the exception of a couple of people that weren't able, able to travel. I know Nicky Tooley missed out on a few engineers. He missed out on his crew chief and his data engineer. Randy Krumenacker wasn't able to travel. You know, there were a few exceptions, but overall, everyone was able to do it. And it was a bit of bad luck on your part that uh, Argentina came off the UK red list just a little bit too late for you to be able to jump on a flight. Yeah, it did. Um, it wasn't. It, it wasn't the jumping on a flight. I could have got myself there somehow. Um, the problem is that being on the approved list of people that were allowed to travel to, to go to work. I mean, end of the day, I'm not going on holiday. I go to work, and you have to tell people the truth when you go into their countries. It's you can wing it if you want, but you sooner or later you'll get pinged and you'll never be allowed to go back or whatever. So it's not straightforward when you're going to work. Um, to go international travel into uh, non-European countries as it used to be in my case um, now you have to justify being there why are you here? You know, if you're only on holiday that's fine but if you're coming to work that's a different matter we've now changed the rules inside Europe and it's always been that way for countries outside Europe so whenever I've gone to America Australia and everyone else you have to go through a visa process um, Argentina and some other countries like Qatar it's fine you just you know that, that's okay you can be a journalist and you don't have to go through 10 hoops but yeah, the long hauls are more complicated, they always were. Um, and that's a thing we need to bear in mind. It's it's like the COVID's just another thing on top of the other long haul stuff. But yeah, the red list, if we'd have known that, there was a rumour 
like two or three weeks before that Argentina was coming off the red list and that would have been enough time for me to be actually able to go and then it didn't happen and then I thought right well that's okay that really is it I cannot do 10 days in quarantine when I come back and all that it just wasn't going to happen um, and yeah it all worked out in the end I could have went but I couldn't strange situation I have to say Gordo Chippy Wood missed out on you for the week. He ended up having to share with a different Scotsman this week with uh, in with GB, but a uh, little bit different for Chippy, a little bit different for everyone inside the paddock. What's been a bit different this year as well, Gordo, is this is a year where you really feel like you're witnessing a bit of history. This is a season that's captivated everyone. This is the best racing in the world. Like, hands down, there's no championship that's delivered more excitement this year than World SBK. Yeah, and in lots of different ways. I think the racing and all the championships has been good this year. I mean, I'm I'm the number one person to defend World Superbike, usually from massively unfair criticism from people outside. But the race has been great this year. We watched the finale of BSB at the weekend. That was great. But really, for, for all season long, I'm having people who are actually working in all those paddocks saying the best racing's been in, in Superbike this year. It's all a matter of opinion. But when you look at the actual how many clashes and crashes and, and, and bits of excitement even when you haven't had a toe-to-toe fight all the way through a race which you don't really get in many other classes either um, unless it's the smaller classes um, you end up we've ended up with something massive to talk about whether it's been rider mistakes a technical problem a swing in the championship even when an individual race hasn't provided five riders bashing lumps out of each other to the flag and there aren't many of those races anywhere in any class and the big classes especially, um, you've ended up with, with a really engaging and thrilling fight between manufacturers. And even the two manufacturers that aren't, uh, well, they are actually now, we've now added another one, haven't we? Um, with Michael Vandermark winning for BMW. But we've now got three truly, truly competitive manufacturers, including privateers for a couple of those, um, what we used to call privateers. Uh, so in every single level you're looking at, the work that's been put in for the rules and everything else, which have been fair for a very, very long time. Uh, but what we've now got is a is a change in the rider dynamic, which now means that somebody like Johnny is not just fighting one and a half people or one manufacturer or whatever. He's actually fighting everybody. Um, he's ha- he doesn't know where the, the, the duels are going to be coming from. Did anybody imagine that Bassani was going to be the guy that caused all the interference for all the top three riders um, in Argentina? And there he was in a dry racetrack. He, he'd, he'd never uh, raced a superbike up before. Uh, and there he was right in amongst the top three superbike racers in the world on a private Ducati for a team that it wasn't Barney Racing that's been around forever. It was Motocorsa who are relatively new to this game um, and have already posted a few great results this year. We've got a complete championship this year. And the only thing that was missing from it before, which I think a lot of people didn't quite understand really, was the final, final little 1%, half percent improvement in lots of different things across a couple of the other bikes. But more importantly, a rider who is as consistent as Jonathan, I've, I've used this word a million times about Jonathan, it's consistency, but it's consistency at 100%. And you've got that with Top Rack. Top Rack never looks like he's going to fall off and he always looks like he's on the edge of a crash. That's what you've had to do. You know, Johnny rides differently, but Top Rack's style just looks like a... He's gonna he's gonna dump it, and how many times does he do it? It's incredibly rare. So that's what Johnny's up against this year, in my opinion. It's Johnny that's up against it more than Top Rack. You have to say it as well, Gordo, that with Johnny and Top Rack, you've got two riders that are remarkably similar to one another, and um, we've seen it now over the course of this season. Where you know, in the past, what was Johnny's biggest weakness? It was getting the most out of a lap on the Q tire. Top Rack was the same. He's made that big step forward this year. What was the big weakness for Johnny whenever he was on the Honda? He had to override that bike to such an extent that he had lots of crashes. Gets on the Kawasaki and he's super consistent. For Top Rack, whenever he was on a Stock 1000 bike, Kawasaki wasn't as good as the Ducati. He had to override it. Didn't really have the success on that bike that, you know, as you can see from his talent now, that you would have expected. Jumps onto a superbike does a, a year on, on the Pichetti, starts working with Phil Marin, and then gradually all the things that had been a problem for him, you know, lack of training, lack of discipline, lack of focus, 
they've all been rounded out over the last few years and that's where we get to a season like this where suddenly Toprak's ready to show that he's the complete package and you know, when you look at any rider anywhere in the world no one's made less mistakes this year than Toprak while also being consistently at the front and that's where you know he's been amazing and it hasn't been a surprise to see Toprak make that step because you knew the talent was there. I think what's been the big surprise is that we've seen that uh, Yamaha have year on year chipped away at that bike. That's a bike that finished third in the world with Vandermark and with Lowe's. It was a good bike a few years ago. They've just made it a little bit better step by step. And then you add Top Rack into the mix and it's right there all the way through the season. Yeah, I had a conversation with Paul Denning, the Crescent uh, team owner um, in Australia in 2020, at the beginning of the year. And he was talking about the Yamaha just being as good as every other bike and, and all that. And I, I kind of, we had a bit of a disagreement about it. Um, but I think that was just a year out. I think that his point was 99% correct and that the bike was capable of winning races and so on. But the bike, the Yamaha this year, is just better than the Yamaha last year. Not because it's a massively different bike and anything else. Their new model was a year, was would have been 2020, I guess. So there's not been a massive upgrade, but what they've done is they've got the thing to work. They've taken all the weak points away from it, or most of the weak points away from it. They've added to the strong points and they've made it more consistent. Obviously, they've had some technical issues, but that's beyond the actual design of the bike or anything, or as far as we can tell, or the capabilities of the bike. Um, if you, It would be interesting to look at how Top Rack would do if he didn't have any of those technical issues that he's had this year. Um, we'd be looking at a different championship. So that's even, but that's also a, a way of explaining how much more the Yamaha's come on. He'd be even further ahead. Um, it's, it's, it's absolutely the complete package. The Ducati, when it worked, when it came along, was by far the best bike, but it doesn't always work at track to track. And they're still having that same problem. So there is something not right. Um, you know, you can't, there's no logical argument against it. The Yamaha has been made to work at every track. It's used all its uh, benefits of good handling and so on. The bike is fast enough now. Um, it's, it is a rounded complete package. And then you've got somebody like Top Rack who takes it to the absolute limit of its performance and without making any mistakes. Which is funny enough, uh, to go back to your point, uh, the whole point I started on here was to go back to your point is that they are very similar riders, Jonathan and Top Rack, because that's what Jonathan's done all those years. He's taken that Kawasaki as far as it can go and further than anyone else. Just when you look at this season, Gordo, obviously when you're inside the paddock, it's very rare that you have the time to realise that you're witnessing something really special. You're working away, you're trying to get your deadlines done, trying to do commentary for me, you're trying to do all those things. But this season, there's been that sense really from, say, Navarra onwards when we saw Ray and Raz Gutioglu just going at it. From that point onwards, there really has been that sense that this is a special season all the way through. And it's it's a markedly different season to some of the other like specific seasons you can look at in World SBK or in MotoGP and say that was a, a turning point championship or you know, that was a, a real historic season. Like whenever for me, the only comparison I can make is 2015 MotoGP, where Sepang made that season special. We went to the last race of the year and everyone was talking about MotoGP. It had been a really good year up until that point, lots of good races, but that was the turning point that made 2015 probably the most memorable year in MotoGP history. This year in Superbikes, obviously there are some comparisons to make from past years, but this year is very different because we've had the two riders bar to bar nearly every race. It hasn't been like 2002 where it was a season of two halves but we never really saw Edwards and Bayless fighting with one another on track. This has been a full-on season where both riders have just been at it with each other. What we've seen is it changing week to week. The the advantage and, and a lot of the expected outcomes haven't actually turned out to be. Um, we still haven't seen Top Rack get a completely uh, a whole three races on a weekend. Obviously, Magni Coeur across the line, yes, and then it was a, a technical problem. But that's what it says in the record books. So you've got even the dominance. You look at Argentina, the dominance that Top Rack had. And then finally, on Sunday, it didn't quite work out. And there was people there to take advantage of it, more than one. It's been that kind of season. You've had Johnny crashing at Donington. You've had unexpected things all the way through the year. The net result of which has been Johnny goes up, Top Rack goes up. Johnny goes up, Top Rack goes up, and so on all through the year. Throw into that the fact that you've also had Reading who, until Argentina, was really close in coming to them. 
There was no reason why, with 124 points left, as we had before we went to Argentina, that a couple of problems for the, for his opposition in Reading wouldn't have been in a position to go into the final round as a potential champion. So it's actually... It's even more than a man-to-man and manufacturer-to-man manufacturer fight. It's three different people and three different bikes. So it, it's now come to, finally, it's come to that, okay, it's going to be this guy versus that guy. And 30 points is a lot of points. But it's it's also been a completely one weekend up, one weekend down, one weekend up. No one has got momentum over the other person but they've both had massive momentum all year. It's been a very, very interesting season. When you look at that 30-point gap, Gordo, do you see Jonathan overcoming us? Uh, not without problems for Toprak. It's just not possible. He could have the rides of his life, and you know, Toprak just needs to finish you know, behind him on the podium, do enough, um, which he's more than capable of doing. Uh, finally, Toprak will, even if he doesn't think about it. He always says he thinks about it race to race, and he probably does. Um, it's done him not bad. But I think there will be conversations about, look, if you have to finish second, do it. Don't do a risky pass if you don't fancy it. Don't take any chances. Um, whether that affects him or not. But you've got to look at top right making a mistake rather than Jonathan going out and winning it. Jonathan could capitalise on a mistake and go out and win it. But 30 points is 30 points. It's a lot. What I'm quite keen to see, Gordo, is if we go to the last race of the year and Top Rack only needs a handful of points, is he a rider that's capable of just going around to try and get a few points? Um, yes, because it would be drummed into ha- to him by everybody, uh, even if he's not making that connection himself. But he's already spoken about it. He's always actually used the word championship from some of the comments that he made Um that my colleagues and so on were very kind enough to send me from the weekend. Uh, he's already made those comments. He's starting to use the World Championship now. And every time we've tried to talk to him about the Championship this year, he's just been blanked. As he's just not engaged with it at all. Um, it's race by race. I only think about the race. So, yeah, we're now at that squeaky bum time, as they say in football. It's, you, you, you've now got something on the line. And that, the, Johnny again the, all the mind games come in now don't they Johnny's saying the pressure's now on his team and, and him to get things done and at the end of the day you're looking at well they've had two technical failures within the last five or six races four or five rounds you know that that's they'll, the people working there will be thinking not this weekend we are going to make it perfect so this is what adds to the drama of it all motorcycle racing is a team sport Ultimately, you get the gladiators out there on a, a Saturday and Sunday racing for points, but it's a team sport. If your bike's no good, you're not going to win. If your bike breaks down, you can't take the points. If the rider makes a mess of it, all the work everybody else has put in over that weekend and through the year is, is wasted for the team. It's actually the ultimate team sport because then you get to examine the work of the whole team in one one little thing. You don't have to keep an eye on 15 players in rugby or 11 players in football um, to see how the team are playing you get that it's all down to the final field goal in, in American football you know there's like the whole thing everybody's got you to that point is a guy going to score or not and that's kind of where we are we've got three field goals now we've got three penalties to take to see if who's going to win who's going to hold their nerve as much as anything else I think that's where it's interesting as well Gordo when you look at the other championships obviously the Riders Championship is the one that gets all the attention Yamaha is leading the Constructors Championship from Ducati and they've got a decent margin in hand I think it's 16 points or something like that so they do have that margin in hand right now that gives them a little bit of margin going into the last round for the first time in a long time Kawasaki aren't going to be able to win that championship for them I think they're 55-54 points down on Yamaha Kawasaki can't win the team's team's championship as well this year given all the problems that they've had on the other side of the pit box with injuries for lows so Yamaha are in a position to go to the last round of the year where they can win all three championships and the manufacturers championship does mean an awful lot to to each of those manufacturers Gordo yeah, absolutely. Um, it's what it's their it's their race. The manufacturers championship is a manufacturers championship. The team is the team's championship. It, it's they're, they're self-explanatory. The but the riders championship is the ultimate one that everybody wants to win. I genuinely think that the manufacturers would still want to win the riders title above everything else. But when you do win your manufacturers title, that's a that's something exclusively for you. It's more yours than it is the riders or anybody else's. But 
everybody remembers who the Riders' Championship is. Can people rhyme off who was the Manufacturers' Championship model Superbike five years ago? Well, you know, probably Kawasaki. Kawasaki, Kawasaki. But, yeah, but you know what I mean? But you're just going to take that as red. But what I mean is no one's going to actually even talk about it, never remember, you know, then want to go and remember if it's true or not. It's important for the people involved, but it doesn't make any difference. Who's the world champions this year? It'll be top rack with Yamaha or Jonathan with Kawasaki. It's both. They're similar. It's it's the same together. You'll remember both together, even though it's a riders' championship. So they'd to me a manufacturer would still much rather win the riders' championship, and the team would much rather have one of the riders winning the riders' championship than them overall winning the the team's championship. But it is important to them. It's just not important to the world. Let's see. Gordo, you love being put on the spot on the Paddock Pass podcast. So before we go to an ad break, I'm going to put you on the spot. Who won the Manufacturers Championship in 2007? Um, I've absolutely no idea. Well, go on. You can you can just take a guess, Gordo. Can't be Honda. So I'd say Yamaha. Oh, Gordo, I'll tell you what, you're on the money with that one. So we're going to take a break on the Paddock. Go on, why? The reason why is they had Haga and Corsa, I think, knocking lumps out of each other to be the dominant rider in that team. Um, Bayless was well ahead of his teammate in the in the, the Ducati thing, and I think Tozel might have been the only Honda rider on a superbike that year. If he was, he was the only one that did anything. So those those that that to me, right, from my memory, which is very old and very like a you know Swiss cheesy, um, you know, there are big gaps in it. Um but I think that's 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 my logic there, Steve. Am I right? Am I right? You're you're 100% right, Gordo. It was Tozant on the Honda that year. And uh, I think he had, a, he had a teammate through that year. It might have been Robbie Rolfo, maybe. But Rolfo, Rolfo did very little on it. It wasn't a thing that year. It was only Tozant. He was the only one that could get it to yeah. go anywhere. But I tell you what, Gordo, you just, you just don't miss out whenever it's... You know, a fact through the era of World SBK. So we're we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast, and when we come back, I'm going to keep peppering Gordo with lots of trivia questions. You bloody bear not. <laughs> Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide, offering both on and off road products for every price range. Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street and also by Gordo's Trivia Knowledge. And uh, Gordo, 2014, who won the Manufacturers' Championship? Prelia. There you go. The man just knows. The man just knows. I'll tell you what, Gordo, who's going to win the championship this year, though? Is it going to be Top Rack or is it going to be Johnny? I'm going I, I'm going down to put my money on the bookies, no matter what you say. Uh, I've got no clue. Uh, it's, it's incredibly tempting to say that with 60-odd points left and 30 points of a difference, it's, it's going to be Top Rack. Um, and it's even more credible to say that's the way it's going to be because of the way Top Rack is. Very little gets through to the big man. I think the the one person in the grid who's going to be feeling least pressure of everybody is going to be him. He's just the way it's part of his nature. It's just the way he is. It's always always been. He just give me the bike and I'll race it, and that's it. Now we'll see if he does have any nerves at all. But I kind of doubt it. I've got, I honestly can't call it. I can't call it because the one person that you don't want having behind you is Jonathan Ray. And his whole crew and that manufacturer who've been over the ground so often. It's that's the only thing I'd say. Um is if it was the other way around, you might favour a bit of a no, it's definitely going to be more Jonathan than Top Rack if the positions were reversed. But given who's behind Top Rack, that everything one mistake, one mistake, one rider does something stupid and takes Top Rack out in the first corner. One technical issue, and we're back to a five-point game, aren't we? If John, assuming Jonathan wins, obviously, the other race. We're back to a five-point game with two races left. Obviously enough, Gordo, we did see that uh, Kawasaki went up against the Racing Gods this weekend and came out on top because they went out with two special edition liveries, one for Jonathan Ray, one for Alex Lowe's for their 125th anniversary special. And I have to say, I loved the look of the bikes. 
Yeah, they look great. Um, I mean, everybody's got a favourite. To me, Kawasaki will always be those first years in Superbike with the blue, white and green. That's always the, the Kawasaki car scheme to me. All those ZXRs and ZX7s uh, and, and uh, the, even the Aussies and stuff used to run that car scheme, as I remember. Um, that's the iconic Kawasaki car scheme. The, the black and red thing is... Every time I see that, I can't help but think of a GPZ900R. Some people think of a famous movie that I've never seen, but me personally... Fuck off, Gordo. You've never seen Top Gun. I've never watched it right through. I've seen oh, bits of it. And I've watched the bits of the plane action, which were great. You know, obviously, in the era, at the time, the plane stuff was fantastic. Can I say one thing about Top Gun, which which shows just how dreadful a film it can be? Like, I, I love the film, but it's absolute shite. Um, I think... I think uh, Danger Zone gets played about 17 times during the film. I've never seen a movie that relies on one song so much for the soundtrack. No, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it. It's like, you wouldn't believe how many films I've never watched that I'm totally aware of and I understand the plot line because they just become part of the subculture. You know, there's loads of TV things that I understand the basic premise of. I have never watched more than two minutes of and thought, I can't watch this and change it. Um, so... But yeah, that colour scheme is always a GPZ900R, um, which was the bike of that year. Everybody wanted one. It looked different from anything else. It looked thuggish and beautiful and could race as well. Um, I've ridden a few of them. Uh, a wee bit before my time when I got into journalism, but I read a few of them after, and uh, it was still actually quite a good bike, very typical Kawasaki, but in its day, that was like a step forward bike, like Fireblade and everything else, one TTs, and, and you know, that's what you wanted, um, and I know a few people that had them, and they all loved it, so yeah, I can see why they did that colour schemes, but if you're asking me my favourite, I think the, the blue, white, and green one. The red and black one, not quite as nice. Did, did you think it was a massive surprise? Like, you know Johnny very well at this stage, Johnny's probably the most superstitious man in the paddock in a lot of ways. And it was a big surprise to me to see him go out there with everything new. He had new gloves, he had new boots, he had new leathers, he had new helmet. You know, it hasn't always worked out too well for Johnny whenever he's gone out with limited edition or special edition stuff. You think back to Australia last year, he had that massive crash in race one whenever he was using that Australian helmet. And I'll tell you what, he didn't go out in race two with that helmet. No, and uh, he mentioned that in his post-race comments, didn't he? He was, he was quite kind of, I'm glad we got through that with ever, without any mishap, you know, he was really worried about it. Part of me likes to think that Johnny went to bed the night before with all that gear on, including the crash helmet, just so that he'd worn it before he went out, you know? Part, part of me thinks that he went for a quick jog around the back of the, the garage to get it bedded in, because, yeah, every time anybody does any of these celebratory things, it does have a habit, the fates have a hand, hand in it quite often, look at Yamaha, how wonderful were those bikes, the 60th anniversary bikes that we saw in Catalonia, and look at the luck they had, and with that colour scheme on, it is almost like you're holding out a wee flag to the fates and saying, come on, come and get me, and Johnny is very aware of that, and it, again, it shows you the mental strength of the guy that even though he might have been thinking that before it and after it, during the race, he probably did, you know, professional enough to not give it a thought. But yeah, it's a risk. And at this part of the season, you'd imagine they would have done it earlier in the year, but they must have really wanted to do it. They must have really, really wanted to do it. Well, I know that the, the photo shoot was done long in advance, so it was always planned for this weekend, the 125th anniversary. But I tell you what, after Johnny had those two crashes in Portimao, I'd say he wasn't looking forward to putting himself out there in, in a special limited edition livery. But on the other side of the pit box as well, we saw Alex Lowe's have, again, a recurrence of his wrist problems. We saw him have a really strong opening race the weekend. Again, I managed to qualify Johnny Ray just like he had done in Jerez. So it shows the one lap pace he has. I thought race one was really impressive to come away with fourth place. And... You know, you've seen Alex after some good races where he's come in and he's he's not been happy, Gordo. He came in with this fourth place and he was bouncing around the media center. He was excited for the rest of the weekend. He really felt he got the most that he could out of that race. And then suddenly we go into the Super Bowl race and we see two laps from the end. His performance just dropped off, wasn't able to hold on to the bike, had to sit out race two. It's been unfortunate for him. It's also been unfortunate for Johnny that he doesn't have that backup man at, at his full fitness. Yes, um, it, it's very unlucky. Alex has been incredibly unlucky this year. But the good thing is that he's got next year in his pocket, and he's he's got he understands that when he's healthy, he can still do that. So even after that season of of missed races and everything else, 
Uh, and a lot of tests as well. He's had to squeeze in tests here and there. He's got the pace. The pace is still there. And the bike isn't, relative to the other bikes, as competitive as it was. I think we've seen that as another kind of true truth we can take away from this year. So that puts an even better perspective on it. For Johnny, yes, it's very difficult to have a wingman who is looking after him because he might never have had it, either through the the, the injuries that Alex has had, the competitive as everything else. Leon obviously was injured a fair bit when he was riding along with Johnny. Um, and then before that, he was in absolute competition with Tom Sykes. They wouldn't have given each other an inch, I don't think. They did, eventually, and Johnny uh, also helped Tom. If we remember in Qatar, to help him get over the line, I think, into second place one year. So, yes. But I, I think that was probably mostly because Johnny really wanted to do that as well. He wanted to rub it in Tom's nose that, there you go, mate, come on through. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's the way people do these things, you know, Baz as well did it, I remember, he, you know, he went away ahead and then waited and waited and waited, it's always a, a, a kind of, uh, a niggle thing for a rider to be asked to help another rider, even if it's in the same team for the common good, um, so the idea of wingman, yes, I think Yamaha are a bit more collaborative in the wingman thing, but they're also in a position whereby Locatelli's better at qualifying sometimes than top rackers, so that's where he helps him, and then the other way around, he'll, he'll help him getting rid of his super sport lines and ride the super bike way, you know, use the rear tyre more in the front tyre. Um, that's what Locatelli told me in a recent interview I did for the official programme. So, yes, but I think that Alex is very willing to help Johnny. He understands very well the whole team thing. Um, when there was no place left for him at Yamaha, Kawasaki, who won all these championships, came and, and offered him a ride. I think they're all happy with each other. The, what they're not happy with and how can they be is the bad luck they've had this year. But the main thing is that Alex took away pace. He's got the pace still. So that's another guy for the championship next year. Gordo, just when you look at Kawasaki, I think this weekend showed it again that their straight line speed, we saw that uh, we rode on board a few times with Johnny down the back straight, using the slipstream from top rack, ducks out of it and then almost has to duck back in. It was like the start of 300 racing whenever we saw riders having to do that down the Aragon back straight. And for Johnny, I think it's it's pretty clear that the the cost of not having those 500 revs has been pretty severe at times through the course of this season. He's had to ride right on the limit. He's had to override at times. He's had those crashes. Now, I think that for me, the right thing was done if the FIM are as consistent as they always are with things like that for the rules. Kawasaki should have had all their ducks in a row during pre-season testing and had the bike homologated. Now, whether that's a team issue, a Kawasaki global issue, an FIM issue, whatever it is, that's a situation that shouldn't have arose you know, a week before the first race of the season to suddenly have Kawasaki have to roll back to a different spec of bikes. But you would have to say it is pretty clear that there is a disadvantage there for Ray. And it probably makes it even more impressive what he's done over the course of this season because he has had to ride at his absolute best all the way through. He has, and he's had to override. And I think they've also, the team have been forced to try things that they haven't before um, and push things to the edge. They've also had a lot of problems entering corners, whether that's um, the design of the bike, the basic engine inertia, the, the, the way the electronics work, the strategies they have to use, the balance they have to use to get it around the rest of the racetrack, whatever it is. Um, the, that was a big advantage for Kawasaki was stability under braking and corner entry and that seems to have been lost a bit this year because maybe they've had to set the bike up differently to stay with everyone else um, to, to make up for those 500 revs you can't say it's it's not a disadvantage it, the, the thing is it, is it does go against the history of the championship whereby if a, if a rider is obviously struggling or a manufacturer is obviously struggling for top speed that it's within the power of the the organisers to say, right, we'll give you some more because you need it. They've done it before, um, but they haven't. So, you know, there's a lot of elements to take into consideration here. I have to say, from my perspective, what I would like to have seen happen is Kawasaki obviously lost, I think it was 300 revs whenever we initially brought in the rev cap in, in 2019. If Kawasaki still has the same basic spec as back then, it would be good to see Johnny get back those 300 revs, not the 500 that they were looking for going into this season. If there is an issue that the FIM wouldn't homologate that bike for not bringing significant enough upgrades, you know there were surely the availability of going back to previous revs 
for Kawasaki. But as it is, we've also had a great season all the way through. So, you know, there is the party that likes to see Johnny have to race like this as well. Like in race two this weekend, Gordo, I don't think we've seen racing like that all the way through the year. I didn't get to take a breath until about lap 20 or something like that. I'd say you nearly fell off the seat. It's no, it was amazing racing, um, and for a reason. Um, and you know, end of the day, that I think the people that enforced the rules in terms of is this a significantly different motorcycle took the view that the Kawasaki wasn't, but the BMW was, and that BMW M is has got a lot more small individual changes inside the engine than the previous one. But they've the rules are very complicated, and there's several areas to look at for it, but. In theory, it's a new engine. You'd have to bring a significantly different engine. What again? You could take the viewpoint that BMW brought a few significant parts changes inside the engine. Um, but also, when you look at it from another light, you go, "No, no, that's no, that's fair enough. They changed this. They changed that." It's a judgment, and in the judgment of the powers that be, that the bike wasn't changed enough. So there was obviously a massive miscommunication um, or misunderstanding of the rules um, at the beginning of the season. What you do about that through the year? Um, the trouble is that Johnny's been leading the championship it's very difficult to give somebody revs when they're leading the championship even using as we call it the God Clause where the organisers can just say look we, we, we reserve the right to change this because it's unfair or whatever when someone's leading a championship or fighting for a championship it's very difficult to say oh, you guys are in trouble we'll give you something you know in that case they should have given Honda another thousand revs we should have given Honda an extra cylinder you know if it was a case of that Although the Honda's problem is not top speed and power, obviously. But there is, if you look at the results, if you were looking at things thinking, oh, well, they're playing with the results. Well, the results are that Johnny's been leading the championship for a lot this year. So it's also a difficult thing to try and justify. It's much more important for the people behind them who are running privateer bikes who are probably artificially low on revs compared to their competitors. That, to me, is where the real problem lies. Um, is it unfair... Well, okay, we'll get a, ju- a jury in. We'll bring 12 or in Scotland 15 people in and we'll debate it. And we'll probably get a split decision. You know, it's all opinion. I'll be honest, Gordo, a jury of your of your peers looking at Twitter, which would be that, the people that you see getting the complaints seem to be peers of Jonathan Ray, as in they're coming from back home. And uh, the, the rest of the fans seem to be quite enjoying what we've had this year. And it, it's hard not to enjoy it whenever... You look at race two, Scott Redding gets himself in the mix. He would have been right there in race one as well. He was able to take pole position. It was only his second pole position in World SBK. So this was a weekend where Scott made another step. He looked really impressive all the way through. I thought it was good to see him get the elbows out. I think it was pretty clear that Ducati still had an advantage down the straights here in in Argentina. You saw that with Rinaldi, Bassani, Redding, all able to make their moves, no matter what happened, come what may down the back straight. But I thought Scott rode really well. And it was a very typical Ducati V4O race where it can be a bit of a challenge to get to the front. But once you get to the front, you can set consistent lap times, you can run your lines, you can open up a bit of a gap to everyone else. Yeah, it was also a typical Ducati weekend because obviously there was a crash in the first race that you couldn't work out what happened. Um... There was that. So what I'm saying is the bad luck and then good luck, or bad luck and then good performance, the unexpected and then the expected. Um, yeah, Scott was uh, fantastic in that race. It was amazing to see, but there was also that. Uh, some would say human error. I think he's indicating that maybe something didn't didn't happen the way it was supposed to. He said he wasn't off in a bad line, etc. Um, so maybe something went wrong. I don't know. Um, he re- he remounted to finish ninth, which I think was actually the ride of the weekend. Really coming through to to finish ninth from that position, maybe even more impressive in race two. Um, what would he have done in race one if, it, if that hadn't happened to him? So, uh, yeah, no, the Ducati is there. It's still the enigma wrapped in a mystery, hidden inside a locked box. I, 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 they, it amazes me that 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 bike hasn't been worked out. Because it can't be that good one weekend and then not good the other weekend and nobody by now understands exactly why. And I am still getting 10 different versions of events from people in red. What's the real problem, guys? And none of them are able to put their finger on it. And they're having the same issue. Look at what bike dominated in Britain the last couple of years and didn't this year. Strange. It's just strange. It's a strange, strange motorbike. 
what I think is probably quite interesting is that when we come back from Indonesia, Ducati are going straight to Hareth for a test to try and get Bautista on the bike. Now, from what's been said around the paddock, it won't be a brand new bike for next year, but there will be upgrades. So it'll be interesting to see if they can make a bit of a step because they didn't bring any upgrades for this year. And it was a big struggle at the start of the year. You saw Redding, Chaz Davis. They were very vocal about the issues that uh, Ducati were having and the fact that they hadn't managed to brought too much to the party. Um, we're going to take another break on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back, we'll, well, go to it. 40 minutes into the show, we'll eventually look at the other bikes on the grid and what we saw in San Juan. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, Gordo, like I said, we're going to look at a little bit further down the field. Obviously, the big three we saw battled it out at the front of the field, but we saw BMW make another step forward. Three top six finishes for Michael Vandermark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that when the BMW works well, it can work very well. Uh, he was only a few seconds down in that second race. Um, Michael's obviously a real force. They've won a race this year in the wet. They've had podiums. But to me, having three races, all in slightly different conditions, and one obviously over a, a short space of time, only 10 laps, and the other's over 21, having those consistent results is actually more important for the overall development of the bike than having one Hollywood result in the wet. Um, and I think that's a good indication of where that bike's going to be. I can't wait to see Scott get a hold of that bike as well because, as he said to me before, he's never ridden an inline four-cylinder in his life before. Now, I don't know if that's true and he's misremembering, but when you think what he's what he rode in, in uh, big bike, I mean, um, what did he ride more GP, V4s all the time? So there you go. He there's a whole new challenge he's got, and it's a screamer. It's not the Yamaha, which uh, in theory delivers power a little bit nicer. It's a proper screamer, four cylinder in line. So that's good. That bike is is by design going to be a wee bit more tricky than most other bikes are. But I think ultimately, um, that's a good riding lineup for next year. And I think by the time they get to next year, they're going to have the bike a step forward again. But three six places, or three top six places. I think he was 6th, 5th and 6th, wasn't he? The weekend, if I remember right. I might be wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. That's that's shooting. You know, that is shooting. Um, And the bike has got problems going into the corners at the back. They've got one identifiable problem that every rider that's gone anywhere near it has said the same thing. So now they've got one thing to concentrate on is to fix that. And if that's the only thing that's holding them back, sky's the limit for them next year. Let's look at next year for them as well, Gordo, because it does look like they're going to have four bikes on the grid next year. It looks like Benova are going to move to a two-bike team. That could be Loris Baz, looks almost certainly one of those riders. Eugene Laverty has been talked an awful lot that he'll be the second rider. So you'll end up with Vandermark, Redding and Baz. They were uh, the tallest podium that I think I've ever seen in World SBK in uh, Portimao, and you'd certainly expect them to be uh, the tallest rider lineup that uh, we've ever seen. And then you put Eugene Laverty into that mix as well, obviously a very different stature for Laverty, but uh, it is a it is potentially a very strong lineup for BMW to push them forward. Absolutely. Um, and what we're now seeing, again, um, Yamaha is the perfect example, is the best thing you can do is to have four factory bikes, even if two of them are a little step behind. That's the way they do it in MotoGP as well, isn't it? They'll have four or five different... Um, bikes for you know for development purposes they'll go these guys are on the standard one these guys are trying the new stuff and sometimes it's the second team that tries the new stuff to make sure it works four bikes is the way forward minimum um and it also means you've got customers if you get five and six bikes you then start getting money back into your racing ducati have always done that in the past and you know for all the help that people are getting they also get money back so it's, it's the way forward, uh, as long as it's the four right riders, as long as it's the right team. Um, and if you look at that, as, if that is their actual lineup next year, you look at that lineup and every single one of them is a, a racer, a race winner in Superbike. And, uh, you know, Eugene's the one that's been furthest away from a podium uh, in terms of years. And look, but he's won how many races? 13 or something? And, been, you know, he was the vice champion in the championship. 
You know, that's right. That's a, a line-up of riding talent. They had the same with Tom. Don't get me wrong. Tom is obviously a world champion. Um, and he's out this year, so for next year. So the riding lineups going to be stronger next year just because they've got the second team filled in with people who are current. Look at what Baz did when he came back on the Ducati. So he's still at the height of his powers. Just uh, when we look at the rest of the rider market, Gordo, one of the big things that we've heard for the last couple of rounds was Taz McKenzie potentially going over from the British Championship. Taz, of course, won the BSB title at the weekend at Brands. He had three uh, three race wins in a row to, to finish off his season. But uh, when you look at a rider like Taz potentially going to go 11 on the Ducati, it could be a move that could work out really well for him and it'd be interesting to see what ends up happening with it. I think it would be a lot better if he went to a Yamaha because obviously then a lot of the homework's done. That would be better for Taz um, or any rider to come into a World Championship to ride the bike that they've been riding in the National Championship. But if that's not possible um, and he does turn up in a Ducati, it's a tricky bike. But also look at what Bassani's done. So the, 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 the keys for the door are there. It's just a case of opening the door properly, being able to. Um, I think it would be fantastic to see Taz coming over to the World Championship. I think it would be great to see the winners of all the national championships being given a good ride almost every year, every second year. And I don't think that's beyond the, the, the wit of all the people involved to do that. And if you're a national championship and you send the guy that becomes the next whatever, then it looks good for you. Not saying wholesale, I mean, we stripped BSB of a lot of its riding talent over the space of two or three years, some probably 10 or 11 years ago, all in one go almost. But what talent it was, that I don't think is the, the scenario you would see in the UK now. I don't think there's that many riders that would be able to make the jump, but Taz has shown real quality. He's got some experience because of his Moto2. It was, didn't work out very well, but it was a really good experience for him. Going back to BSB, grown, developed, won the championship is still a significant thing to win. Why? I'd love to see Taz come in the World Championship. Not because I know his dad or because of any of the, any, you know, he's Scottish or whatever. None of that. It's just a case of we need to see more talent coming from the national championships into World Superbike. It's been a big loss. Look at Gerloff. Okay, he's in a bad season now, but look at last year. He let the place yeah, up. I think when you look at uh, a rider like Taz, he's just about to turn 26. That'll be next week. So he's in that typical stage where British riders do suddenly make their big step, come into their prime. He's a rider that won the British Supersport Championship, I think it was five years ago. Like you said, Gordo, he jumped onto a Moto2 bike. He's got plenty of experience on a superbike now. He's won races for each of the last three years, wins his championship. I think going to go 11, if that's where he ends up going, It'll, it'll either work or, or it won't work. It's one of those situations where with that bike, with that team, they've been able to win races with Rinaldi. They've been able to have really good results this year. You look at Baz jumping on that bike at a couple of rounds. I think the one thing with the Ducati is, and we spoke about it earlier on in the pod, when that bike works well, it's a great bike. You know, a rookie comes in, it's peaks and troughs. Look at Bassani this year. He's had a great season because he's had three or four rounds where he's really exceeded expectations. Mizano... You know, last weekend in Argentina, a few others where he's really impressed everyone what he can do. That's because the bike is really good at some places and a, and a rookie can come in and do a really good job. I'd be really keen to see what Taz does on any of the bikes on the grid, but especially that Ducati as well. It's interesting, Gordo, that you mentioned about the national champions. Obviously, in Moto America, we saw Jake Gagne dominated the season. That's a rider that whenever he had his chance in World SBK didn't have the experience, the know-how to be able to really make the most of it. He looks like a much more complete rider now, but will he ever get another chance to be back on a World SBK grid remains to be seen. But I think it is interesting that it shows the depth that you can have in national championships. And Gerloff coming in from Moto America, Cambodia doing the same in, in Moto2. They've both shown that they do have that level to be able to get up to the front. And I think that's where it's interesting to see the opportunities that riders get. And Gorda, when we look at the Supersport Championship, obviously Dominic Agutter just won the championship at the weekend. But when we look at the Moto2 riders that have come in and been able to do a really good job in the Supersport Championship over the last few years... All of the guys that have been winning the championship since Keenan, whether you're looking Locatelli, Krumenak or Cortese or now Dominic Agador, they all come from that Moto2 background. Yeah, um, I've written about this, I've talked about this before, but ultimately, um, for lots of reasons, uh, we're not producing as many, we still are, we're not producing as many 
star riders in Supersport from inside. Um, although that hopefully is about to change, given the the final fruition of the 400, 300, 400 class. Um, but the easiest place, if you're a team manager and you're looking for a rider that can compete in your team against another guy who's got a, 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 a you know a, a top rider from Moto Two in his team, is to go shopping in Moto Two, and they've all done it. Um, I remember when Bardal brought over Locatelli last year. The team manager said, "This guy's completed his degree. He's he's it's like he came from riding university. As soon as he got on a super sport bike, which is not a Moto Two bike." whatever anybody else thinks, it's just not the same. Um, he understood so much about it. He understood about riding. He understood about preparation. He understood about setup, mechanical setup. He understood what where he could make advantages, how tyres worked, even though the tyres were totally different. Um, and that is a very tempting thing to do. And a Moto2 rider who, there's differences inside Moto2, depending on what you're on, what team you're in. If he gets into a top team in Super Sport, he can move things forward. He's got experience that maybe some people in the, mo- in the super sport team don't have. And it becomes, if you make the most of that, you end up as one of the guys right at the top. And that's what's happened over the last few years. People have brought that experience and moved things on. But it's also got to be in exactly the correct team. Krumanaka Kawasaki, not quite there. Obviously, Keenan's still there, etc. But when he got onto the best Yamaha, the championship that year was between him and his teammate. And obviously enough, Gordo, this season we've had a great storyline. Tenkade back winning a world championship. This is one that I remember when Tenkade obviously had to withdraw from the sport. We were we were both in the Hareth test when we found out. And the whole paddock, the whole pit lane seemed really upset that we weren't going to have Tenkade on the grid for, for the next season. Obviously, they came back with a superbike program. They've jumped back in with the super sport program and this year getting all that success with Dominic Aguilar. Now, Gordo, for the third time today, I'm going to put you under the trivia hotspot. The 11 Tenkade world champions, who are they? From the beginning, uh, Fori, Muggeridge, uh, Charpentier, Vermeulen, uh, uh, Superbike Tozland, obviously. Uh, let's go back the way now and say. Uh, so obviously Agatha. Uh, I don't know, mate. No, I'm, come on, come on, Gordo. You're nearly there. You're nearly there. You're nearly there. You're nearly there. I need a pen and paper here. I might get my shoes and socks off to start counting here. So, Vermeulen, Forey, Chaponte, Vermeulen, Muggeridge, Chaponte again. No, sorry, mate. I'm, I'm embarrassing myself here. I need to stop. I'll tell you what. I'll give you a couple of hints then. Right. There's, there's one lad... He's he's uh, he's a Turkish lad. He was pretty good, Gordo. <laughs> there was there was another lad that we've already talked about on this podcast as well. He had a really good weekend in Argentina. Uh, he's the world's fastest truck driver. I'll tell you that much for nothing. Oh, Van der Mark, obviously, yeah. There's there's one more left. There's one more left, and uh, he uh, he's another Aussie. Oh, Andrew, sorry. There you go. There you go. I've written a whole feature for an Aussie magazine last week. But you only you only talked about him as a crew chief, Gordo. You only talked about him as a crew chief. You've forgotten already that he's a world champion. Because you think how much success that Keenan had on that Tinkout Honda and you cannot see him now in anything except Green and Kawasaki. I, and and I've probably touched on this before in the podcast and certainly in stories. Since the advent of the internet, which is the devil in many, many ways, and made my life much more difficult than it used to be in many, many ways. It also makes your life much more easy. And I genuinely used to remember this stuff because you had to. Nowadays, I look it up because I've got really good statistics websites that are 100% accurate and I can use them to get that information. I don't rely on my memory anymore. I used to have to and I don't anymore. And the sum total of that, funnily enough, is that my memory about these things isn't as good as it was. I used to be able to rhyme off the world champions like... Pew Pew, Barnaby Rue, Cuthbert, Double Grub, tell you what year, everything. Now, I don't, because it's possible to get it wrong in your mind. You can't really get it wrong when you look it up. 
Well, I'll tell you what, Gordo. I actually, I had this yesterday where someone was chatting to me about Nico Toral and his success in the Grand Prix paddock. And I, 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 I'll be honest, I just thought Toral was a great 125 rider. I'd totally forgotten that he had won Moto2 Grand Prix. I think he won three of them. And I'd totally forgotten about that because, like you said, you do start to just rely on Forex and uh, wherever you can find your information first. And uh, Seriously, Steve, when I was a fan, before I became a journalist, I devoured all the magazines. I, I was It was all I did because it's all I was interested in. My job didn't interest me. Motorbike racing and motorbikes interested me. I could tell you what bikes were by the look of the back headlamp, but the, the back tail light and stuff, you know? And I could tell you who won what because all I did was devour information about it. Now I'm one of the people generating that information. You actually concentrate on the thing that you're actually doing at the time. What's happened nowadays, you can just look up. Yeah, you can remember it, but I always double check and I try never to write anything from memory anymore because your memory's fallible. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the big things, Gordo, where you do have to double check it because you can be wrong. And uh, there's nothing wrong than open, nothing worse than opening up a paper, opening up a magazine and seeing something that you've put in that's wrong. Well, actually, no, I tell a lie. There is something worse than that. It's when the editors change it to then put it wrong for you. You know, not, not, not that I look back bitterly at anything that's ever happened to me in the past when editors have fucked it up for me. <laughs> Gordo, I'm going to leave... I'm going to leave the pod today with a question that came in from uh, one of our listeners, quite an esteemed listener, actually, none other than Dennis Noyes. And uh, it, was, it wasn't a question from Dennis. It was actually a comparison to a different time. He was basically making comparisons between what's happened in, in Spain in the, during the, the Franco era and uh, what could potentially happen with Turkey now. Turkey's off the Formula 1 calendar. There's a pretty good track in Istanbul. We could well have a world champion from Turkey this year. you got Anshu doing really well in the super sport class. Bahattin Safoglu looks like a 300 front runner as well. Turkey's on the wave. And uh, you know, Dennis is wondering, you know, would we ever have another Turkish ride in the world SBK? Uh there's, as you say, there's a perfectly good racetrack there. We've got a lot of money in the championship from Turkey. Um, there's a huge push from the Turkish government and the sporting authorities to have Turkish motorbike racers. Why do you think we've now got loads of good Turkish motorbike racers? Because people have invested in them all through their careers. Um, so, in theory, yes. But because of Keenan, in theory, we could have had a race there every year and we didn't. Um, I think the issue there is more internal. Um and political. Um, but what a racetrack. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, thankfully, a lot of talk about should we go this place or that place anymore. Um, and all these things do have a, a valid discussion to be had about them. But the racetrack at Istanbul is fantastic. It's got one of those great corners in, in modern day world racing now, out the back and that right hander. Um, it's an amazing facility. When Keenan won that 600 race, I thought the place was going to collapse because the noise was so much. Should we go? Up to others. Could we go? Well, the place is sitting there and and we keep apparently having problems. Does somebody want to pay for us to come there? If they don't, then we probably won't go. That's the way it is. This is a business. People need to make money out of the business. Um, but we are not going to find getting rounds any easier. The best thing that is going to happen for us this year is that the race is so good that people will want to have it because people will then want to go and watch it, especially after COVID. We're not finding rounds any easier to come by. That's certainly true when there's a Scotsman and an Irishman at the bar. So you've got to make sure that you're supporting the Paddock Pass podcast at patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast, where you'll get all the additional content all the way through the course of the season. Right now, we've got an interview with Kevin Schwantz from Neil on that. So check that out. That's for $3 a month. You can get uh, the Paddock Pass podcast extra shows. You can also get the Paddock Pass podcast notes show. That's where myself, Adam, Neil and David all sit down every day of a Grand Prix weekend to get you up to speed on what's happening in MotoGP. So check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. And uh, for myself, Steve English, from Gordon Ritchie, from all of us on the team, big thank you to everyone for supporting the pod, including especially Fly Racing and Rental Street, two of our sponsors on the show. But most of all, a big thank you to everyone for listening to the show. It's been a really successful season for us on the Paddock Pass podcast. A lot more listeners. And uh, Gordo, it's been a really successful season for World SBK. We've got one more to go. No, fantastic. It's, uh, it's it's going to be strange that we've got so long to wait on it, but um, it's great that we're going to have two long-haul rounds. It's great that we're in the position that we are now. 
who's going to who's going to win? We don't know. Uh, there is one clear uh, name at the minute, but as we've seen this year, you cannot predict or with any certainty say this is going to happen, and that's what's making it part of the reason. Not just the racing itself, but it's the ooh, it's the talk away from the track. And right now, I think everybody is expecting what's what's going to happen. Who's going to win? What's going to happen? Um, and you know it's been a great season they've been involved in it's, it's so weird with all the Covid rules but otherwise what a fantastic year to be involved in World Superbike yeah it's been a mega year for us and uh, hopefully for all the fans watching as well so a big thanks from myself Steve English and Gordon Ritchie and all the team to everyone for listening to today's show this episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler David Emmett Steve English Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler it was edited by Brian Burnett Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.